Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 157. In this episode, we're talking about hell and disability in early Christian literature with Dr. Megan Henning. Dr. Megan Henning is Associate Professor of Christian Origins and the Director of Undergraduate Programs at the University of Dayton in Ohio. She's also the author of the recent book, Hell Hath No Fury, Gender, Disability, and the Invention of Damned Bodies in Early Christian Literature. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our series on disability and theology, we're continuing our exploration of textual matters and the representation of disability, but we're turning here to talk a little bit more about early Christian literature more broadly, especially texts that were written after the New Testament. And in this discussion in particular with Dr. Megan Henning, she's an expert on hell and the depictions of hell in apocalyptic texts from the first couple centuries of the church. Uh, we, We talk about the way that damned bodies are represented and indeed invented, as Dr. Henning uh, argues, and specifically the way that gender and disability are part of that representation. And so it's a difficult a difficult topic. It's a bit of a difficult conversation, uh, but there's a lot of helpful insights here about the way that early Christians thought about disability that I think will be helpful for us to, to consider as part of this broader series on disability and theology. Steph, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Henning? I think that one of the things I'm going to be mulling over for the next while is the way that Dr. Henning talked about being mindful of the deliberate nature in which visual rhetoric is utilized in our communities and particularly, I mean, hinging off her earlier work on the pedagogy pedagogical function of uh, hell and the images that are used to disentifies people and the way in which all the bodies that are described in these early texts are both feminine and disabled and that that's not an accidental link that there's actual intention in that logical connection and she really helpfully unpacked the reasons why that linkage was present in in those early communities and I think as I go away from this conversation I'm going to be thinking about well how are my unconscious implicit understandings of the afterlife informing the way that I treat people in the present so this was an amazing conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Megan Henning. Well, Dr. Henning, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So we're really interested in talking about your your newest book, uh, Hell Hath No Fury, uh, and specifically the representation of, of damned bodies. And you get into disability and gender uh, in that book. And we wanted to kind of start this conversation out by hearing just a little bit about your background and your interest in disability studies in particular. Yeah. So um, my interest in disability studies began um, when I was a teenager, long before that I knew something called disability studies existed, um, which is true for a lot of the, the those that do this work. Um, I was a teenager and my uh, grandmother was in, um, was taking care of my grandfather who was um, dying of lung cancer. And um when she found out that he was going to come home from the hospital and um, enter hospice care, like any good Italian grandmother would, she decided that she was going to go to the grocery store and buy enough groceries um, to make all of his favorite foods for his last few weeks of life. Um, And she had been staying up around the clock for many months to take care of him and be with him anytime he was awake. and so she was very tired and she went, waited till he fell asleep, went to the grocery store at four in the morning, filled her cart and her car up with all of the groceries that she would need. And on her way home from the hospital, um, she ran her car into a telephone pole after she fell asleep at the wheel. 
Um, she sustained massive internal injuries. She had had open heart surgery um, years before, and that wound in her chest, like, opened and her organs were all not where they were supposed to be. She had to be life lighted to the hospital and have life-saving surgery. Um, they did save her life, um, although her leg had to be amputated. Um, and so she was in a coma for, I believe, two months. And my grandfather died 10 days after her car accident. When she woke up from the coma, my family explained to her what had happened. Um, and she was understandably very sad about my grandfather's death, um, but also, you know, concerned about her newly acquired disability. The doctors and nurses all reassured her, though, that um, even though she had lost her leg in the accident, that she would walk again one day um, through prosthesis. And um, my um, father also lost his job six months after her car accident. So my mom was going through a lot. My whole family was going through a lot. My grandmother was experiencing a lot. And our community of faith, being very, very supportive, came alongside my family and helped us process these events. Um, but what I noticed as a teenager is that people could be using the very same biblical texts and the very same tradition to try to support my family and all mean very, very well. And sometimes those interpretations of scripture were helpful and sometimes they were not. Um, and so that's how my interest in both biblical studies and disability studies began. Um, I, at the time, would have phrased it as I was interested in questions of bodily suffering and biblical interpretation, though when I encountered disability studies in graduate school, um, which I was introduced to by my best friend, Candida Moss, um, I start, I found new language um, and realized that I wasn't actually interested in questions of bodily suffering per se. I was interested in when it was that we interpreted someone's bodily difference as suffering and when we did not. Um, my grandmother was moved to a rehab center after her accident and shortly after that move was told by a different set of doctors that she did have spinal cord damage all of a sudden and would never walk again. And after that, um, my entire family saw a complete demeanor change in my grandmother and her approach to her body and her life. Um, and she died in a hospital two years later um, after her accident, um, mostly living in rehab centers and hospitals um, and becoming depressed. And after I was introduced to disability studies, I could say that um, I believe, and this is my interpretation of the story, not anybody else's, I believe that ableism killed my grandmother. Um, she lost the will to live when she found out that she would never walk again. Um, and it was dramatic, the change that we saw in her. So uh, disability studies offers a lens, offered me a lens for many years as a scholar, as a temporarily able-bodied scholar for reading experiences that were a big part of my life. I have many friends with disabilities, many family members with disabilities. This was a big part of who we all are. Um, my I tell my students that they think that they're studying this in my courses because of somebody else, but it's also always about them um, because all of us will one day become disabled. Um, and that's what Leonard Davis says, you know, it's kind of the universalizing aspect of disability identity. However, um, in the global pandemic, just almost a year ago now, um, I myself was diagnosed with ADHD. And so um, I didn't one day become disabled. I've always been disabled. And I just didn't know it. Um, so, so now I identify as uh, a disabled researcher who works on disability studies myself. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Megan. Um, I think that one of the themes that's come out in throughout this series has been the ways in which disability is so morally freighted and usually in, uh, in unconsciously negative ways. Can you um, hash out to us the kinds of contours of those implicit um, messages that you think that your grandmother was receiving about herself after yeah. she, she lost her leg? Yeah. So um, <laughs> there's a, Within disability studies theory, there's a, um, a literary trope 
that literate, like English scholars of disability studies call the moral test theory. And the idea is that in most literature, when people with disability or film, when people with disabilities are present, um, they're not really the hero or the main character of the story. They're, they're put there so that we can see how the other characters in the story respond to their disability and whether or not those other characters are good people based on how they respond to the disabled body in their midst, who is sometimes like not even a three-dimensional person. Um, the, the ways in which um, community members, so I mentioned my parent, our church community, um, there, there were people who would say things like, um, well, you know, my mother was sick too. And um, I, we just really prayed hard for her and she got better. Um, so we just need to like pray really hard for your mom, for your grandmother. Um, and like, as uh, Stella Young, a disability rights activist says in her TED talk, right? No amount of like looking at a flight of stairs and radiating a positive attitude or praying about them changing into a ramp, right? Is going to make that happen. So um, it can be very frustrating, but it is also ethically freighted, right? The idea in the prayer example is that if my family was just maybe more spiritual, we wouldn't be having this experience with disability. Like maybe my grandma would have woken up from her coma sooner if we had just been better prayers. Don't know, right? That was the implication that was there. So, um, and I don't think that's uncommon. That wasn't a narrative that those individuals made up. They were trying to make us feel better, right? It's that was the most widely readily available script. And so I don't fault any of those individuals who said those things, they have picked up in their culture this widely held attitude that some particular kind of body is better than other kinds of bodies. And if you are morally, ethically doing the right things, you will receive that superior kind of body. And if you're not, then that's when you end up in a different body, a non-normative body, a disabled body, um, according to the narrative of the parent culture. And as someone who does work on biblical texts, I can say that um, our culture is not unique in this way, <laughs> right? Um, there are other cultures and civilizations that had a similar attitude and approach to disability. And that is in part where we get some of these ideas, especially if we are part of traditions that hold those texts as central, um, but also if we're in cultures that are influenced by those texts, whether or not we ascribe to them. And of course, in your research, you've demonstrated how a lot of this is operative in early Christian texts uh, and, and, and their descriptions of hell and the people who are there and the representation of damned bodies. And we're curious to kind of hear more about that in particular, and would love to kind of set that up a little bit by hearing a, a bit about your first book on hell, Educating Early Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell, published by Moore Seebeck. Can you tell us a little bit about how hell um, is educational, how the rhetoric of hell is educational for early Christians to kind of help set up this conversation about its representation, the early Christian representation of damned bodies in particular. Thanks. So um, in the first project, I had started to read some of these texts. Well, back up a little. I had this interest, right, that was grounded in this experience. And I started reading uh, the theological texts that are kind of, or the New Testament studies, biblical interpretation texts that are standard training for New Testament scholars. So I was in a seminar and I'm reading Boltmann, as you do, um, in graduate school. And in his New Testament theology, he has this line about how, you know, there are these passages that describe weeping and gnashing of teeth or outer darkness or eternal torment or Hades. But those aren't part of the essential theology or the kerygma, as he calls it, of the church. Those are the things from the outside cultures, pagans, namely, he calls them, right, Greeks and Romans. And so he says, this is just a dribble from the outside culture. This isn't the kernel of the Jesus message. It's not, it's got nothing to do with that. 
Um, and I thought, well, that would be convenient if it were true that, you know, Jesus isn't meaning for this to be the ethical center of the message, but that this is just part of the outside culture. But I thought it had to, surely it had to be more complicated than that. Um, and, and I started to suspect that perhaps it wasn't totally true because I had done a lot of thinking about apocalypticism already. Um, and, and I knew that many people thought that the apocalyptic outlook was kind of central to who the earthly person of Jesus was and to his ministry. And so then I I wanted, I began to be interested in thinking about what exactly was Jesus doing when he invoked these images that we associate with hell. Um, there at that point, there was a lot of work like Alan Segal and other scholars who had kind of said, look, like this is, you know, we can separate these things out. We can say, you know, Hades is just a, a reference to Roman notions of torture. And when we see Gehenna, like that's that's the valley outside of um, the city. And, and so really there's no hell in the New Testament, right? And so even, you know, late 20th century, early 21st century scholarship on hell was still really trying to cling to this idea that hell wasn't in the New Testament. And I just, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, and so I started to do the research and started to think about ethics and um, rhetoric in the ancient world. And I got acquainted with the work um, on ekphrasis or visual rhetoric. And what I started to learn as I started to look at that literature is that as Greek and Roman students were trained in the basic founding, the building blocks of rhetoric and education, they frequently had to memorize uh, Odyssey and Aeneid, but not just any parts of the Odyssey and the Aeneid in the educational handbooks the most frequently memorized passages of those texts were Odyssey 11 and uh, Aeneid 6, the tour of hell chapters, okay? So I had suspected that this worked educationally. That is that in ancient contexts, people talked about eternal punishment in order to try to persuade or um, convince their audience that they needed to behave in particular ways and had an ethical message. But when I found out that a number of the educational papyri had um, a focus on these particular chapters, and then you have rhetoricians talking about how rhetorical training is all part of the ethical formation of the soul of the, the student, um, it, it became clear to me that when um, students were trained in rhetoric, especially descriptive rhetoric, visual rhetoric, they were taught to tug at people's emotions, to persuade people using emotions that were familiar to them from other experiences or encounters with other stories. And that kind of experience was meant to have a powerful effect on your audience. So it's not coincidental that this language, that these descriptions that would invoke fear were commonly used in educational context and then get used by the Jesus movement authors in educational contexts in the gospels. Um, that's not a coincidence, that's by design, both on the part of Plutarch and uh, Virgil and uh, Plato and Matthew, who has these teaching moments in throughout the gospel where Jesus is serving as educator um, and trying to persuade audiences to behave in particular ways. So I, that first project was really about trying to figure out what was the hell language doing and not as much about where did it come from, but where, what, what is it doing when Christians are pulling this from the broader culture. To say that it comes from the broader culture doesn't really change the fact that it's still in the biblical texts and was still used by early Christians 
um, and later Christians for thousands of years as well. Um, so I think that getting at, at what the language is doing can help us think more carefully about what we're doing when we read it today. Mm, that's so helpful, Megan. Um, as you're talking about um, the kinds of visual rhetoric that are used in the broader culture, but also in early Christian communities, is there anything distinctive about the kinds of visual rhetoric that is invoked in the Christian tradition as opposed to the broader culture? And and similarly, to dovetail that question, is there anything distinct about the way that it's used mm-hmm. that's different for Christians? Yeah. So, um, so two, so a two-part question. I'm going to start with actually the second part and work back to the first about the images. So the second part where you asked, is there anything distinctive about the way that it's used? Um, it's similar to other instances in the sense that it's consistently used for ethical education. What is distinctive about the way that it is used in the Gospels and in the early Christian apocalypses that follow those Gospels and, and interpret them um, is that it's focused always on care of the other. And you get some of this in Lucian, for example, the comedian. He does have this great passage where um, in Hades, the poor are carrying, or sorry, the poor are riding on donkeys who are the rich. And the rich have to carry the poor around for like 250 years in Hades. Um, So you get this reversal of fortunes thing in other cultures, in the broader culture. But what you get in the early Christian texts is that there's not only this reversal of fortune, like we see in Luke 16, for example, with the rich man and Lazarus, but the idea that uh, specifically how you treat the people in the world who are seen as the least will will be how you are judged in this life and in the next, right? You're meant to change your behavior now. And the most, I mean, in the contemporary world, like when people imagine hell, they particularly usually think about individualized sins. Um, And to be sure, those are there too. I always say that like, if you're the if you think that hell exists, like we're all going there, right? Because these are like very comprehensive lists um, and no one's left out. Okay. Um, but our contemporary focus is always on these individualized sins, but these ancient texts are very concerned about like, who's who's feeding the poor and the hungry, who is providing um, offerings to those who are without in the broader society. Um, who's serving agape meals to travelers. Like, it's very much about how you're taking care of others in community, um, which I think is distinctive, especially from our own assumptions about what might be going on in those texts. Um, It's never, um, it's really rarely ever um, in the earliest texts about belief. It does become about belief later on um, by some of the fourth and fifth century texts where you could be excluded by um, denying the incarnation, for example. Um, but that's that's a later development. In Matthew 25, the goats are those who don't care for other people in community. The images, the first part of your question, is that Christians both borrow other images that are really common um, in other texts that are earlier, both in Jewish apocalyptic literature and in um, Greek and Roman visions. Um, but then they also dramatically amplify it. So um, when I say in the subtitle of the book, like the invention of damned bodies, I mean it quite literally that nobody imagines damnation with the severity and intensity that early Christians did. Um, So, uh, and really early Christians are basing these images off of uh, images of ancient prisons and torture that are in their midst in the Roman period. So, um, so some, like I said, some of the images are are clearly part of antecedent texts and traditions, like, for example, the presence of fire. Uh, but other things like dampness, darkness, um, 
noxious fumes were part of, for example, like the Lake of Avernus or like sulfur, um, sulfuric spaces, but they were also a really prominent part of uh, ancient prisons, which would be underground mines with, just to be clear, no bathrooms. So they did in fact smell like feces. Um, and uh, that is, um, I'm really looking forward to the work of uh, Mark Lettany and Matthew Larson, who have a book on ancient prisons coming out um, soon, which I uh, think is going to be phenomenal for helping us understand how early Christians are really drawing on uh, these ancient punitive tactics and, and practices. But basically, um, early Christian hell is like the minds only just unimaginably worse because you can't ever get out. And John Chrysostom says that um, in one of his treatises. He says, like, it's like the minds, but worse. Um, this is how they imagined it. And and that point about the invention of, of damned bodies and, and the kind of the distinctiveness of the Christian representations of damnation in this way, uh, I'm wondering if, if, if you could extend this and, and tell us a little bit more about the representations of, of disability in particular. Mm -hmm. You talk about gender as well. I'm curious to, to hear more about the ways in which uh, disability factors into uh, these uh, depictions of hell. The way in which the damned bodies in early Christian hell are depicted, as I was first reading the early Christian apocalypses, which the second book focuses on, uh, I had, uh, Candida Moss had written her article, uh, her JBL article on um, the woman with the flow of power, or the man with the flow of power, sorry reading uh, Jesus in the story of the woman with the flow of blood and and the way in which uh, gender plays a role in that story and embodiment and disability. And as I was writing the first book, I uh, was really, really aware all of a sudden that these bodies are all being read not according to our standards of embodiment and torture and what is going on with bodies when these things that are described would happen to them, but according to ancient ones, right? The cultural model of disability says that disability is both something biological, but also something that is defined by a culture. Um, and so as I was reading these texts that describe bodies being changed before the eyes of the reader, it was very apparent to me that all of the types of bodies that were described as punished were womanly, effeminate, weak, leaky, disabled bodies. And to be clear, in antiquity, just like in many contexts today, uh, to be disabled is to be female. Um, and to be part of a minoritized part of a gender hierarchy of the broader culture. And so I started to look at ancient medical texts more closely for clues as to what some of these punishments might mean. Uh, one of the examples in the book, for example, is worms. Okay, so we know from the Isaiah 66 passage, there's this reference to the worm that never dies. Um, and I had always, when I was reading these texts before, uh, thought that these worms that were eating people's bodies or spewing forth, forth from their intestines were like earthworms, right? Like, and I thought, well, that's gross maybe, but not really scary. Um, and then I started reading in the ancient medical literature about the kinds of worms that ancient folks would have been truly afraid of and concerned by, um, and namely intestinal worms. And I became immediately convinced that the worms in hell were intestinal worms. But intestinal worms in antiquity were thought mostly to impact women and children because Ancient medical authors thought that they grew in women's uterus, in a woman's uterus, that that's actually where they were formed. Um, and that's why then babies were born frequently with worms and needed to have treatment for worms right away. Um, 
we take for granted that there are safe and effective medical treatments for this kind of ailment in the contemporary world, especially in the United States. Um, most of us don't think about like how horrible it would be to have intestinal parasites. Uh, but in the ancient world, this was deadly and very serious and terrifying uh, and a threat that was ever present. So uh, I suddenly, um, when you have church officials who are being punished in hell in the early Christian apocalypses with worms that are spewing forth from their mouth or their intestines, uh, these are male church officials who have been made womanly and disabled for all of eternity. And that is their punishment. Um, and so the damned body is the effeminate body and the disabled body, which then in turn, if we think about the cult, the way that disability and notions of disability are formed culturally, um, means that ancient hearers of these texts and traditions were associating the disabled and womanly bodies in their midst with sin and punishment. Um, so disability studies before um, had frequently uh, or more broadly focused on positive examples of disability in antiquity. So thinking about some of the super crypt tropes in myth in Greek and Roman myth, for example, um, or looking at the ancient Asclepia as examples of like healing and healthcare and a positive focus on the disabled body and, and had kind of almost through the cultural model of disability looked at the ancient world as this like wonderful era where people weren't as ableist as they are now and thought that ableism was something that we kind of invented. Um, you know, thinking about like, for example, Foucault's birth of the clinic, imagining that we ableism really came to fruition in the light of modern medicine. And one of the things that I discovered through my work on hell is that these moralizing assumptions about the body may be very different from antiquity. And we do need to think about how um, notions of the body in antiquity are different from our own. But I don't think that we can say that um, disability in antiquity was always viewed positively, because this is one glaring example of um, the disabled body being associated with moral failure. I just follow up on what you said about, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be females, to be disabled and just understanding this link a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Was it, was it that, um, was this coupling of femaleness and disability, was that just um, a, a random bundling of two bad things, bad outcomes to disincentivize certain behaviors or was there a logical link between great those question. two things? Oh, that is a great question. Thank you. Um, it, there was a logical link. So the medical authors were observing closely. Like we like to think about when my, when my students read ancient medicine, they expect that Hippocrates and Galen are going to get a whole bunch of things wrong in some really humorous ways. And it's going to be like random old timey medicine. That's what they're expecting. Um, but they knew a lot of stuff about how bodies work. And they didn't always understand the things that we can understand when we look under a microscope in terms of causality, but Galen has this long treatise on how like he wishes people would stop confusing causation and, and correlation. Um, and I have my pre-med students read this. So they're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> um, so um, they were observing a lot of things and they were getting a lot of things right. One of the things that we know from the osteoarchaeological data is that um, women in this period of history um, died earlier than men um, and by a significant margin. So their idea that the female body was weaker in constitution um, was probably based on this, right? Women died. Um, now, what they didn't know is that their insistence that women have as many children as possible in as rapid of succession as possible with no prenatal supplementary vitamins was probably what was causing the yeah, early Yeah, that'll do it. Right? <laughs> um, so, you know, their bones were falling apart. Their bodies were falling apart because they were being expected to do things that other people were not being expected to do with their bodies. Um, so they're observing this 
in a way and then saying, oh, well, women's bodies are weaker. Women's bodies are uh, more likely to be ill. Women's bodies are more prone to um, a number of disabilities. And, um, and so, yes, there was a logical connection. Um, but then there's also a huge cache of literature and story that develops around this such that it would have taken quite a lot, right, to push back against that tide uh, with any kind of contrary vision of the woman, the female body. So um, both is my answer to your question. So I, I'm curious about how some of this might differ from uh, New Testament representation of mm -hmm. hell and representation of damned bodies, especially mm -hmm. since your second book is more focused on the early Christian apocalyptic yes. literature that is written later on. Do mm -hmm. you see a development in either the nature of hell itself um, or, or, or uh, the representation of uh, the bodies that reside there? Do, do you see any kind of development in that kind of um, yeah. in the understanding and the representation? Yeah, um, the the bodies that reside there are not described with the same breadth of detail in the New Testament texts. So in the, the first book, I talk about this as kind of energeia or ekphrasis. And I say, like, we, these are definitely examples of descriptive rhetoric that are meant to evoke the imagination. However, the focus there is really on the ethical behavior that you're meant to avoid and then there's some detail that's given, but it's meant to link you to other texts that talk about this or other things you might have heard about um, places of eternal punishment and evoke those emotions. Um, there's less uh, focus on particular bodies receiving particular measure for measure of punishments. Um, we get in Luke 16, the biggest description, right, of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, and the rich man says he's in agony in these flames. Um, and that's the closest thing we have to this like elaborate description of punishment. Um, and certainly agony um, and physical torment and emotional responses are all assigned to um, effeminate and disabled bodily states and punitive um, experiences. But that is nothing like what we see in the apocalypses in terms of like the level of detail. The level of detail in those um, early Christian apocalypses is much, much um, higher. We, it's, so we're able to then trace that to specific kinds of bodies in a different kind of way. Something that I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on is reverting back to your earlier comment about how one of the distinctives about representations of, or the way that the way that um, these kinds of visual rhetoric was used in communities was that um, Christian communities tended to be more focused on, you know, your care for the vulnerable, the weakest. Mm -hmm. Now impacts on your eternal destination. Yet, how did how did these images of disabled bodies? affect the way that communities actually treated people with disabilities do you is there any I don't know if there's any record about of that right that's one of the stunning things about this transition in a very short period of time right is that um, a rhetorical trope that was meant to provide ethical instruction on how you should care um, for marginalized bodies in your midst is then leveraged um, or uses marginalized bodies to reinforce this trope over time so that um, there's almost no attention to the, the uh, kind of sad irony there of how, how this happens in the literature. Um, women are 
the I talk about this in the book in chapter two on the way that different punishments change over time, right? Because if these texts are actually written over a long period of time, and that's one of the kind of hard things about this project is that, you know, the, the New Testament texts are written in the first century, and some of the texts that I'm talking about are written between the second century CE and the sixth century CE. So like huge, huge periods of time. And so what this allows us to do though, is to trace the way in which the sins that are punished change over time. Uh, and so, whereas in these earlier texts in the second century, um, we have, and I specifically trace that with respect to gender, we have a focus on um, women and men uh, being responsible for uh, punishments related to children and family in the beginning of the period I'm talking about, by the medieval period, women exclusively are responsible for punishments pertaining to children and families. Specifically, um, you can even be punished if you don't offer your breast to somebody else's infant to keep them alive um, in one of the later uh, texts. So uh, the, the social context in which each text was written uh, very much determines what kind of virtue is being exhorted here. And yet there really aren't any punishments for people who treat people with disabilities badly in any of the texts that I know of. Um, so it's um, at least not, I mean, not directly. I'm curious about the the flip side of the representation of damned bodies, because, of course, developing concurrently is this expectation of a perfect body uh, for those who enter into yes. bliss. And I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little yes. bit. Yeah, Candida Moss and I have an article that's coming out in um, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion that we co-authored on exactly that question. Um, and it we've already, it's already gone through proofs. So like any day now, um, but, uh, so hopefully it'll be out by the time this podcast airs, but, uh, where she covers the heaven side and I, and we wrote it together, but you know, obvious it's obvious, right. What happened there? Um, so, so, um, yeah, I'm always thinking about these things in conversation, uh, with her and she has influenced all of my work really. So, um, her early work in on that in that um another jar article um on uh heavenly depictions of bodies and disability uh was hugely influential for me as I was thinking about this project and thinking about the way in which uh this is absolutely um framing Christian eschatological formation wholesale. So um the article is called Pulling Apart and Piecing Together, right? But there are absolutely visions of the afterlife in antiquity, especially among ancient Christians, where um, heavenly bodies are those that are restored to some kind of norm. And one of the things that I say in the book that I think is really important that I gleaned from disability studies theory is, you know, Rosemary Garland Thompson always says, like, in any society, but especially in our contemporary one, which is what she writes on, um, well, the body that's considered normative is inhabited by something like 15% of the population, right? Only 25% of our current population identifies as disabled. And in antiquity, it would have been much, much higher, right? Because of the way that healthcare worked in antiquity and what they did and did not have, right? You wouldn't have something like corrective lenses that most of us use in our advancing years to see. Right. So most people could expect to go blind before they died. Um, and so in antiquity, what I what is also stunning to me about this work is that in a population where the disabled body actually was the majority of the population, there is still an emphasis on understanding a particular minority body as the norm that you're trying to attain. Uh, and that I think fuels visions of heavenly afterlives where um, aesthetic and uh, masculine perfection are entirely defined by the culture of the persons writing these visions of heaven. Uh, 
but it is perpetuated in the same way that the notions of the disabled body in hell are, um, which is that the, this idea of restoration is absolutely tied to the bodily norms of the broader culture and then continues to be elaborated on across time. I know in uh, Kanda Moss's work and a number of other scholarly treatises on like eschatology and disability, uh, the body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus is often pointed to. Um, I'm wondering in early Christian texts, do we see any reflection um, that mirrors the kind of reflection that we're we're currently seeing? You know, where where people are appealing to the the resurrected body of Jesus as as sort of the paradigm for the resurrected body, rather than an exception. Do do you have yeah. uh, any examples of that in early yeah. Christian literature? Yeah, one of the texts that I work on in um, in Hell Hath No Fury, um, the Libra Requi, the um, the the book of Mary's repose, as I call it in English, um, has a fascinating section where um, Jesus is in heaven with the disciples, and they're just kind of hanging out, having a conversation, as you do, right? Mary just came up, join everybody, um, and so they're having a chat, and uh, the disciples say to him, "Why do you still have your wounds?" And they start like pointing to the stigmata and they're very like disturbed by this. And, um, and the response is something like, and I'm going to mess this up because I don't have things memorized super well, but, um, but it's something like, uh, I'm going to have these wounds until everybody learns what they need to learn. Um, so Jesus's wounds uh, persist in heaven. He is, uh, um, or his scars, um, right. As Moss interprets them in divine bodies, uh, he, he can, he keeps the scars and they're important. It's not an accident. God didn't goof, um, in resurrecting his body with these scars. They are meant to be educational for the audience. Um, now, that is both a great representation of disability in eschatology, but it's also um, fits with the literary trope within disability literature where um, the the body of the disabled person is there for the pedagogical value of others, right? Um, so it, that and that reading, right, that Jesus offers for the disciples is, kind of a common cultural one of like, well, um, and it, I wrote about that in the Acts of Peter articles earlier in my career, right? That Peter's daughter has this function, for example, where her disability is entirely a kind of pedagogical literary device for Peter and the people who are looking at her. So um, yeah, but there are definitely a number of strands in early Christian thought that see the uh, the wound, the scarred or wounded body of Jesus as the one that we should be looking to for information about how, how the resurrected body will look. And it's not one that meets the normative standard of the day. Yeah, that's one, one of the, the, the enduring themes that's come, ac come up a lot as we've spoken to people throughout this series has been that as you call it, literary trope, or uh, you know, generally the ways in which um, people with a disability are treated as objects rather than subjects. Mm -hmm. And as a final question, as we kind of zoom out, and you know, you take your work and you think about how it applies to our communities now and the way we speak about um, people with disability. Um, Generally speaking, the way we think about where we're heading shapes the way we treat people now. What do you think are some of the 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 headline critiques that you'd have for people that you really want people to reconsider as they speak about um, people with disability, the 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 eschatological hope that they have, and and the the way that they think about their bodies. Um, for me, I think that the study of disability shows us that disability bodily difference is not good or bad. It's neutral. 
um, on any given day, um, my own experience of my disability can make my life um, more enriching, better. Um, I happen to have a disability that um, it fits very well with my job. Uh, Hyper-focus is why I am good at doing research. Um, and that's an onboarding feature of my neurodivergent brain. Okay, that's not <laughs> that's not a bug. That's the that's the whole deal, right? Um, but other days it's a pain in the ass, and it's really difficult because I can't be the kind of mother, teacher, scholar that I want to be when I am uh, not able to hyper-focus where I'm trying to hyper-focus on something else where I'm just exhausted um, because neurodivergent life is sometimes very exhausting. Um, so that's just my own life, but that's a common narrative within the disability community, right? That our, our bodies are different, but the great palace lie is that everybody's bodies are supposed to be the same. And that great palace lie doesn't just hurt the bodies and experiences of the disabled, it hurts all of us. Um, you normals are out there really trying to like attain some ridiculous, attain and maintain some ridiculous standard that has you on a hamster wheel of bodily perfection. And you're not just wearing yourselves out, you're wearing all of us out. It's no good. Uh, so that's what my research has really demonstrated for me is that yes, disability is different culturally and in different times and places. Um, and we have to be careful not to ascribe positive or negative value to it in any given place or time. And what the history of health shows us is that um, any culture's bodily norms can be leveraged against the people who inhabit that culture. But we have to be so, so careful not to keep making that hell on earth. Wow, that is that is powerful. Thank you so much for that. And and Dr. Henning, thank you so much for your time and thank you for for joining us. What a mic drop moment to end us with. Uh, but we just really enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate your work. Thank you so much. It was really great to be with you both and I really appreciate your insightful questions.